Hi everybody, this is your host, Ian Uhal. Friendly reminder, as always, please check out our Instagram and YouTube. They're fun. You'll enjoy them. Give a subscribe, it really does actually help the podcast, so we do appreciate that. As for our guest today, he is an accomplished diver. An avid scooter diver, we're talking the dive propulsion vehicle, and one of the most entertaining guests I've had here on the show. He's been at the game long enough that he's going to share with us two near-death experiences of his own and several stories that remind us that we have to stay vigilant anytime we engage with the ocean. Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Ross Overstreet. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast, the podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. All right, Ross, welcome to Motion Folks Podcast. Thank uh, you. Yeah. And um, so uh, I wanted to talk to you about some of the more like over the top underwater experiences that you have, some of the mapping that you've done. But uh, just so that people get a sense of like how you got started, uh, can you tell us like how you got involved with the ocean, with the water? Yeah, well, I actually grew up pretty far away from the water. I grew up in South Alabama, about 60 miles north of Mobile, and the nearest beach was Gulf Shores. And it, for my family, it might as well have been you know the next planet over. Uh, we, we only made it there a few times. But I was lucky in that I had a giant swimming pool in my hometown. And it was actually, a, at some point, it was a pond. It was fed by a spring, and they built a concrete rim around it, and they put the concrete bottom and the shallow portion and the deeper portion either had gravel or sand or mud it was about 15 feet deep and the whole thing was maybe the size of a football field you know end zones and all that's a that's a big pool it it was huge yeah and they had a couple of piers out there Uh, and growing up way out in the woods in south alabama there really wasn't much to do so the pool was the primary entertainment in the summers and we always uh went there almost every day in the summer as often as we could get away with it uh, and one day as a little kid, I must have been four or five years old, uh, standing near my dad. Another kid came by and he had a mask and I had never really seen a mask before. And I was interested in this contraption, this kid had on his face and I asked if I could borrow it. And I borrowed his mask and we were knee deep water at a pebble bottom in this section. And I stuck my head underwater and I saw the sunlight filtering down through the little wind waves on the top and saw the, the light pattern on these pebbles. And I was awestruck. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And at that moment, I knew that you know, water was a special thing and being able to see underwater was just amazing. And I pestered my dad nonstop until he found a mask one way or another. And that was the beginning of a whole childhood of snorkeling and free diving around in this giant pool. Wow. So how long before you actually like made it to like uh, a nap? I don't want to say it's not a natural body of water, but a natural body of water. Uh, Well, I knew that there was a kid uh, in our school whose dad had some scuba gear and he would bring it to the pool occasionally. Oh, cool. So you actually learned a little bit of diving in the pool. 
I never got to use his gear, but I watched him. And, ah. I, and I was just fascinated by it. And then there was an older gentleman that I made friends with at the pool. And this would have been about 1980 uh, that had learned to dive at some point. And he, I was chatting with him about diving and he uh, loaned me his diving manual. And it must have been a 1960s vintage diving manual. Do you remember what like the agency was? It was one of the major ones, but I, I can't remember. And I'd probably get it wrong if I guessed. Right. Okay. But, but it was really detailed where they went over Boyle's law and Charles law and all the physics and they had beautiful diagrams and they had diagrams of how the equipment worked. And it was far more detailed than you get in any modern manual. Well, uh, one of the main like arguments in modern scuba, at least from like teaching perspective is that students don't rely too much on their equipment and that that kind of, deep thinking about what it act, what they're actually undertaking in diving is not there the way it used to. I don't know if that's just old man talk, like the old man instructors versus young instructors, but like, you know, the computer does too much for them and people rely on their computer and they don't know how to do that. But those old manuals, I'm sure they had to convey a lot of really cool information just to get people interested. I mean, I'm thinking about back to when I was a kid, but then I thought this is like military grade information. It was just so detailed. And the guy told me that you know, his instructor would make them do push-ups with their rig on. and stuff <laughs> That sounds that, intense. Yeah, stuff that would get you kicked out of agencies today, right? Oh, well, I mean, it's <laughs> definitely, that's not standard in anyone that I know of. But, but uh, yeah, so I, I learned a little bit more about it. And I thought, you know, as soon as I get the money and the ability, I am going to get certified. Cool. So graduate high school, people usually give you, you know, high school graduation presents. You wind up with a little pile of money there. Uh, and I used that to go down to Pensacola, Florida and get certified. Actually, oh. Mobile, Alabama, I took the test, but my dives were the springs of North Florida. And the, my first open water experience was out of Pensacola. What, what is the, what are the spring? That's not Crystal, Crystal River, is it? No. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass myself. My geography of Florida, I'm sure there's somebody who's going to be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I can't remember if it was like Defuniac Springs or it was one of there's a whole bunch of them there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but it was one of those springs where we had our the part of the open water, and then we actually went out on a boat and went about uh, 20 miles out of Pensacola somewhere and, yeah. and dove some wrecks out there. Isn't that the difference between uh, West Coast diving and East Coast diving is like to just dive, you know, half a mile off the beach, you can get to 100 feet here. Yeah. And over there, it's like, yeah, no, no, uh, you have a 45 to a two-hour boat ride to find places deep enough where it won't matter. Yeah, it seems like yeah. we went 20 miles out and we're 80 feet deep or something along those lines. And That's pretty good. There was some sort of giant barge out there, and there were, just, oh, cool. there were huge barracuda in the water everywhere, and I'd never seen a barracuda before. And just, that's, that can be an intimidating fish, too. Yeah, you had giant teeth, and, <laughs> and they said, yeah, during surface interval, you can just swim around out there if you want, and they'll kind of come up from the, the deep and get near you, and some would hang out under the boat. and. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, wanted to see them. I was intrigued by them. And I was scared of them at the same time. Oh man. But th that was a great experience. And my Boy Scout scout leader, his son and my brother and a few others from town all did the class together. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, it was a really great experience. Was it, th it wasn't, was it through the Boy Scouts? No, it's just okay. my, 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 it was just, that's the crew that was doing yeah, it. Yeah. My scout master was just a really great guy and he would, he was a diver and he wanted to get his son certified. So it just worked out. Um, yeah, that was a great trip. But then I started college, and I was back to being broke. And Where did you go to college? I went to Auburn. So okay. I, I moved another four, four more hours away from the coast, so I went the wrong direction. Uh, and I had, you know, 
not a lot of money and no free time and not great beach access. So I just had to kind of file it all away. There's a little thought, hiatus there. Yeah. But I, I said, you know, as soon as I get the, some money and time again, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I never had any intentions of moving to California. I had well, That's up, what they all say. Growing up in the Deep South, I had heard nothing but terrible things about California my entire life. Everybody talked bad about it. I mean, they still do. <laughs> Probably, I'm assuming. Yeah, but I had a, a job interview uh, with Boeing in Huntington Beach. Okay, cool. And I thought, I'm going to go out just to see what this place is all about. Because I've just heard people talk crap about it my whole life. And I, I flew into you know, LAX or Orange County, maybe, and then drove over to Huntington Beach and went down Orange to Orange County is a good buffer between the rest of the state and the Deep South. But I was immediately <laughs> just blown away. I'm like, oh my God, this place is beautiful. And I, I love the beach and we did so much coastline. And uh, yeah, the, everything sort of worked out and I wound up uh, out here in California. That's great. So you make this massive change from, uh, were you in Alabama at that point? Yeah. The, the, from Alabama um, to California? Yep. Okay. Moved, moved from Auburn out to Huntington Beach. Uh, yeah. And uh, just, you know, Blown away. A mile, yeah, a mile and a half from the beach. Oh. Uh, great ocean access. And so were you just frothing at the mouth to get some scuba gear and see what was out there? Well, it took me a while to get settled, and I still had zero money. I had negative money at that point. You know, you move out with just student debt and a credit card to kind of get established. Yep. So it took a while to, to get sorted out. Um, but within my first year or so, I thought, you know, I, I want to get back into this. Mm-hmm. So uh, I found a local scuba store. I had no gear, so I went and I rented all the gear. And the first time I'd been in the water in 10 or 15 years was a night dive off Laguna Beach. Okay. <laughs> way, way to just jump right in there. <laughs> a night dive after I, being I, off I, for 10 right. years? R- rental, okay. rental gear, haven't, haven't touched scuba <sighs> since I got certified. Right, so this is so like you, so, di- dive five or something like that. Oh my god! So you basically <laughs> did exactly what everybody tells you not to do, and that's an ongoing pattern with me. Oh gosh, okay. So, but I'm assuming you got reinvigor- reinvigorated with the uh, desire to scuba dive because you are here now. Yeah, and, and I got it, that dive didn't go smoothly as you would expect. I had what? Of, yeah, it wasn't weird, night dive right? with rental gear that you haven't I, checked out and you haven't dove in ten years. What I, could I, go wrong? I know it was yeah. a, it was a great fit for my personality, but it, it didn't work out. Yeah. it wasn't a great dive, but I did see a few things. Got a little bit of time underwater. I thought yeah, this is this is great. You know, I've got to do this. So that kicked it off here in California, and then what? Because. I have been kind of following, I, like, I discovered you when you started posting stuff um, about, like, mapping the seafloor and things like that. Was there, was there an interesting transition into that? Like, what got you to that point? Yeah, so uh, I graduated a year and a half before my wife did, so she finally made her way out here. Uh, and then we had to go to Texas for a year, so there were a couple false starts in all of this. But finally, we got back out here and got settled. And uh, I bought some gear and started beach diving. Mm, okay. And I, I didn't know any of the spots. And I was using CDC uh, at the time, which is a little dive shop down in Redondo Beach. Dude, that's, that's where I got certified. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, do you remember a guy that worked there named, I think his name was Russ. No. It's just a surly plumber. He was the best. No, he was Ron. the best diving. Ron. Ron. Yes, it was Ron. Ron for debt. Ron for debt. He was I, a surly plumber. He was the. He was what everything that you would want in a story of a dive 
yeah. uh, instructor, just surly and just salty and just mildly bitter about everything. It was yes. great. I love that guy. Yeah, I, I got super close to Ron over the years, which is a hard thing to do. Like, he, he didn't like getting close to people, but uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time with Ron. Steve Sanford uh, taught my wife to dive. We spent tons of time together. Um, yeah, just I started beach diving uh, because you know boats were expensive and you, it takes a whole day and you can run out and do a beach dive in just a few hours in the morning. Yeah, and you can set your own schedule too. That's the nice thing. And that's where I find myself these days, but I'm getting back to that little bit yeah um but then i i got you know i wanted to know where the good spots are Mm -hmm. because there's we've got hundreds of miles of coastline here within an hour drive you know and some spots are as boring as they can be with nothing but flat sand that only goes you know 20 feet deep forever don't talk about that spark like that leave uh, that spark alone i love that spot well vets has got the canyon so that makes it special okay um but you know there's there's some spots that are really great with reef and and amazing features and geology and other spots that that would just be boring and i didn't know moving out here i i didn't know the lay of the land didn't know anything and listen kids you don't know how good you have it with the internet there's a lot of dive shops that share deep dark secrets about the good spots that uh that us old timers didn't have in our day yeah and i, I knew that pv would be good but i it's hard to get down to the water and there's some spots that are really dangerous if you don't know what you're doing so Steve uh, was my tour guide there in the beginning and showed me around, taught me a lot of the spots. And you know those Franco's maps that they always sell at the dive store? I do. I bought... Those things are still, like, I don't think they've changed in the last 30 years, but they're they... still selling like hotcakes. They haven't changed, but I bought every Franco's map and just would study it for hours during the week and read the descriptions of what animals. He'd be like, this site has bat rays and spiny lobsters and I'd make a note, okay, go check that out, because I want to see a bat ray, because I've never seen a bat ray, you know? Right, as if bat rays were like, this is where I live. This is the bat ray hotel. Uh, this is where the bat rays stay. No. Yeah. But, so, I learned my way around TV. I, I dove every spot that was accessible, and would wrangle friends into it. Um, and got to where we were doing some pretty advanced dives. Uh, you know Neptune Cove? Have you ever dove that, like End of Hawthorne? I, I have done ne- Neptune's Cove, uh, but only from a boat, because that's only what reasonable people do. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. So, How much of a hike is it to get down? It's probably like a 200-foot cliff. Yeah, it is. At least, right? But, but there's a little goat trail that goes down it. And, and, which is, those are the best to walk down in, you know, and then 45, 50 pounds of scuba gear, right? Yep, and that craggy volcanic rock out there in the end that just you know, wants to shred everything. Mm-hmm. That'll just, put a hole in your wetsuit like nobody's business. Yeah, just, just a few spots where you can put in without getting hurt there. And then you got the, the, the waves hit it. And sometimes there's a up and down vertical motion of the waves of six or eight feet. It's a gnarly spot, but it's one of my favorites. So, so you've, done, you've done the arch out there. Yeah. The arch is fun. The, the arch is cool. But what was really neat is we would put in at net we put a, a vehicle at Christmas tree and put a vehicle at Neptune and we would go in at Neptune and kick to Christmas tree. Mm, easier and out. It, it's about a three quarter mile. That's that's a, that's a kick. We had at the time I just had ninety fives, but since Steve worked at CDC, we'd pump these ninety fives up to you know thirty eight hundred or something like that. So Kids don't try this at home. Cave cave fill. Oh my gosh! Uh, and we get a bunch of us. You together. are from you are you. Did get certified in Florida, didn't you? My goodness. <laughs> but we'd get four or five people, and uh, it was just fantastic. Drop in, 
we'd all run out of air uh, before we got to Christmas tree. So you had to swim. Naturally. You had to swim the last eight mile or quarter mile or something on the surface. Uh, we'd try to save a few hundred psi just to get out of the surf there at Christmas tree if we had to. Christmas tree's a beautiful spot though. That's one of my favorite spots in uh, all of PV. Yeah, it, it's it, usually clear. It's not too rocky. Like you never know what you're gonna see. It's a beautiful spot. Water's always clear there. I feel like Neptune's is just a little bit too close to the point, and when you go out to Vicente, like, it has to be the perfect day if you're going to go out to the tip of PV, but Christmas tree is usually pretty nice. But you guys like Neptune, huh? I like Neptune. I think it's uh, more rock and less dirt there, so I've had better luck with Viz there. It's not a lot of people dive it. The fishermen hit it pretty hard, but it doesn't see a lot of divers. But that, uh, that traverse is just a really neat dive to do that only crazy people do. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that statement. So that was great fun. I even talked my my wife got certified, and yeah. I talked her into doing that dive. And I talked and her. Then she never dove again. Well, <laughs> she actually did two hundred dives and then decided it wasn't her thing. Um, but I. <laughs> that is a uh, that is a persistent woman right there. She She's... did two hundred before she was like, no, nah, not really. Yeah. Did you take her to the Caribbean? That might win her back. It took her to Fiji. Oh, took her to Hawaii. Cool. Yeah, she's been to a couple of nice places. Okay, so that's, that'll but, keep you in the game. But I told her, I'm like, yeah, Neptune's no big deal. You know, everybody does Neptunes. So, <laughs> you, you realize we're recording you admitting that you lied to your wife, right? Okay, yeah, just so we're clear. So we're clear about what's happening what, right now. What's hilarious She can is, listen to this. I can't stop her from listening to this. What's hilarious is to read her dive log in the early days and, and compare her log to my log. Because I'll be like, yeah, we're at Catalina and it was amazing. And it was super colorful, and the, the, the sun was coming through the kelp, and I saw a lobster. And her dialogue would be like, it was freezing cold. Everything was gray. Ross tried to kill me again. You know, what, what is that saying about Eye of the Beholder and how that goes? <laughs> like, different, you know, different things stand up to different people. So she never got a dry suit, I take it. She she did. Oh, she, she did. Okay. She got a because nice, the cold thing can be solved with a dry suit. She got a nice two thousand dollar dry suit, dove it about a dozen times, and then decided to quit diving. I mean, it happens. Yeah. Well, it's, the thing with Beth is she is absolutely gorgeous in the water. I mean, perfect and trim. above land. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 But perfect trim makes it look easy. Looks super good. Handles her gear well. But when she gets scared, uh, she tends to kind of freeze up. It mm-hmm. just—it's just a, I don't know, a natural no, reaction. It's a, yeah, her. it's a basic—it's a basic reaction. Some people have it. Mm-hmm. And another weird thing with her is when she gets scared, her breathing rate at least triples. I mean, she breathes super, super fast when she gets scared. And uh, we had an incident. We were diving uh, the Olympic, which is in about a hundred feet of water. It's a deeper dive, yeah. Yeah, diving off my boat. She was on a still 72 just because it was small and she could handle it easily. And normally her air consumption is fantastic, so it's normally not a problem. I think I had my 95. And I noticed her buoyancy wasn't that great. A few times during the dive, she would start to float up and wave at me or shine her light at me, and I'd run over and dump some air and get her back down. And I just thought she wasn't managing her gear well. I didn't realize it. But she had a problem with her VC inflator, and it was leaking air into her VC. And she didn't realize it either. Just all of a sudden, she'd find herself really positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's a that's a sneaky one though, because it's not 
You don't right. It's you don't not an it. obvious. It's not like nothing's. There's no bubbles going anywhere. Right. There's no like drastic change right away. It's just a slow problem happening. An experienced diver, you know, figures it out, dumps some air. It's no big deal. But for a new diver, that just every now and then they find themselves really positive. They haven't added any air. It doesn't make sense. Uh, so about the third or fourth time this happened, and we're near the end of the dive now, uh, she got really scared, and I didn't realize that she was scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, it gotten to the point where it happened enough times that she was shaken. And it's not always easy to communicate certain things. No, and I'm not the greatest, most observant dive buddy. I am so happy to be underwater, and I'm having such a great time. I'm checking everything out. We all suffer from tunnel vision from I time to time. I don't want to watch my buddy the whole time. Yeah, this, yeah, this is yeah. terrible. I, I'm admitting this. I yeah. If I if I know it's a big dive or my buddy's having trouble or if I need to, you know, I'll spend the extra effort and make sure they're okay. Yeah. But in general, I'm a little puppy bouncing all around, looking at everything, just having the time of my life. And I checked her air at some point, and she had you know 800 psi or something, and we were almost back to the anchor line, so. It was all working out. Um, and then uh, we're almost we're almost the anchor line. I look back, and she's giving me the out-of-air symbol. That's I, not good. I thought, this is a ridiculous time to be doing a drill. We're at the end of a dive. That was, that was your thought? <laughs> that, was, that was my thought, because I just looked at her SPG. Uh-huh. And it had like seven or 800 PSI. And now she's doing out-of-air. Like within three minutes of that. So I thought, it's Crazy place to be doing a drill. This isn't safe. We had just clicked into deco. We've got a you know hundred foot ascent to do. So I'm just looking at her and maybe even giving her the hand signal. Like what the hell? She's like I'm out of air. And then, <laughs> then she she spits her reg out and she's swimming towards me. So I'm like, oh wow, this is a you know, this is a big deal. It's emerging. And I had been doing a lot of DIR style diving and, and doing some tech training and diving with a bunch of DIR divers. So I grab my long hose out of my mouth and I extend and get it in her mouth. Yeah. Handle and the she, priority first. She takes a breath, and all the DIR training, the next thing you do is grab your SPG and check and see how much air you have to deal with this problem, and then you show them how much air you have. I'm sure she was really interested. So I'm just doing the thing I had been trained to right, do. which is what everybody does in an emergency. They don't do it. They don't think clearly. They react to their training, which is a really good thing to keep well, in mind I for screwed- anybody who's doing scuba. I screwed up because I took tech training and applied it to a, recreational situation. A really scared recreational person, a recreational di- level diver. Right. Um, so so I'm, I'm looking at my SPG and I'm about to show it to her, and I see my long hose fall back down in front of my face. <gasps> no. And I'm we're at the anchor line by this point, so I'm holding onto the anchor line, and I look up, and she's about twenty foot above me kicking like hell to get back down because her BC had inflated again. So she's super positive. I loosened my grip on the, uh, the anchor line. Um, I think I had a, a light on as well, the Goodman handle, shake that off and just kick up holding onto the anchor line. And, I, and she's kicking down and it's taking me longer to get to her than I want. And at some point I see her start to swallow Probably water. her too. Yeah, she's probably longer than she wanted to be in that moment as well. She's starting to swallow water. Ooh. And yeah, and we're we're like 80 feet. That we're just clicked into deco. Oh my so god. I get close to her, I grab the uh anchor line again. I'm way positive now. So if I let go, 
I'm going to be in a mess, right? I'm probably going to go to the surface or have to work really hard to dump air. And now the anchor line is going down in front of me. My long hose is going down in front of me. And my Goodman handle light is going down in front of me and everything's all tangled up. And I'm using one hand to try to retrieve my long hose from this mix of things. And Simultaneously holding your breath and also trying to keep track of well, your wife. By now I've got my necklace and a backup that's around my neck. Oh, okay, it's it's in my mouth. So I'm, I've got plenty of gas. So you have air, but you're trying to get her I'm air. I'm trying to get her air, but I, I can't. Oh I can God. only use one hand because I'm having to hold on to the oh anchor line God. because I'm way positive. So I finally get the long hose. I get it in her mouth and I grab her rig. So now she can't go anywhere. I got the line. We're both super positive, but we're, we're breathing. Breathing's good. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's she, terrifying. And she just swallowed a couple of you know, mouthfuls of water because she was within seconds of drowning. Oh, my God. Yeah. And at the time. So, how, so now you're both positive on a line. She's probably terrified. She is terrified. So you're I, probably freaked out a little bit, too, trying to figure out what your next move is. Yeah. And I'm also feeling pretty bad about how I've handled this. You're beating myself up a little bit because I just. Of course. Here, here I am, this badass diver that's pursuing some tech training, and I just screwed this thing all up, like in the worst possible way. Happens to the best uh, of us. But I, I get rid of uh, air that's in her wing get her neutral. I get rid of mine. Now we're neutral. Now we're good. She's calmed down. She's holding onto the line so I can let go of her so I can use hands again. Do you, do you remember, like, do you remember that moment vividly? Like, do you remember looking at her at that moment and what you thought she was going through? Like, I mean, what were your thoughts at that moment? Like after you had kind of settled the emergency, like, did you, how did you assess the situation, if you remember? The sight of her swimming down at, you know, at a 60 degree angle, kicking as hard as she can and swallowing water. Terrifying. You know, yeah, it's just terrifying. It's just burned in my memory. And it was nice, clear blue water. And there's the anchor line. And it's just, it was otherwise picture perfect scene. Beautiful, right? Right. But here's yeah. my wife swimming down. Like the most horrible, the, the juxtaposition of the most horrible thing in your mind, your wife. Yeah. Struggling to find oxygen and beautiful surroundings of the ocean. And I just thought she's, at some point, she's going to pass out. I've got to be able to grab her and get us to the surface. And I think Claudette and somebody else, maybe Jeff Shaw or Lane or somebody was with us. And they were the second dive team and they were five minutes behind us and they didn't see any of this. I mean, I'm so, sure it. I'm sure it felt like it took 20 minutes, but it probably was all done in 20 seconds. Oh, this whole story is like a minute and a half story, or something. Right? Isn't in that time. insane? Um, but we were breathing. Uh, we had you know, I don't know 700 psi or something to deal with. So I get us up to 20 feet. We hang out at 20 feet till the tank's dry, uh, because we had you know built just a few minutes of deco, and uh, got on the boat and we were okay. And she dove a time or two after that just to kind of get back on the horse. But yeah. she just decided it wasn't her thing. Uh, that would, uh, that is arguably a very good thing to feel shooken from the, I mean, that's a tough thing. Like, I could see somebody getting PTSD from that, almost drowning like that. Yeah. That's and terrifying. She was a triathlete and an avid master swimmer at the time. And they were doing lots of epoxic laps where they were swimming laps without breathing. Uh-huh. And I think that skill probably saved, saved her, her life. life. Yeah. If she wasn't able to you know, tolerate that, 
Uh, I don't think she could have. I could have made it to her, and it would have ended very differently. So, do you think that that was the moment where she was like, "I'm gonna get back on the horse just to prove it to myself," and then I don't really feel comfortable doing that again? It just wasn't fun for her. And yeah, she realized that when she gets scared, she has a really tough time dealing with the situation. When it's when she's doing well and it's everything smooth sailing, it, you know, it's it's fine. But it was never super fun for her. Well, I mean, also, too, like, I mean, nobody wants to pursue moments of terror. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Or, you know, it's just like, you don't want to have that in the back of your mind. I feel like if, I think anybody who could have that scenario, it would take a little bit of time to get over it, you know? And if they didn't get over, you know, and if they didn't get over it, I think it wouldn't be out of the norm for anybody. So this is is where her uh, career as a diver dry suit diver kind of ended yeah with that kind of a couple more dives and and just to prove it to herself that she could get over it which is yeah, she, admirable on its own that she got back in the water after that she likes uh warm water shallow water bright light she keeps saying that she'll probably you know, get back into tropical diving one day in very easy places that's not but, terrible that's... yeah but cold california and deep uh just aren't her thing and i absolutely love that i love Deep, dark, and scary. I, yeah, I you just, pursue you pursue the the monsters in the I, deep. I do. It's a little bit of a thrill seeker there, and it just it feels like it's a secret place. It, it I, feels yeah. like you should tiptoe and whisper, and you're not supposed to be there. And it's a special thing to be able to sneak around this deep, dark wreck and see what's going on. I just love the way that feels, and for her, it's terrifying. So it's people just process it differently, right? Well, and people get kicks out of different things. Like, that's always. Some people like going in cars very fast. Sometimes yeah. speeding cars is completely uncomfortable for people, right? Same same difference. And I, I love all the gear. I think it's <coughs> fantastic. And she's just the opposite. She's not a gear person. Yeah, let's talk about the gear. So you did something that I think very few individuals did. And you purchased a fill station from a dive shop going out of business. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, um, I've had a small compressor for many years, maybe 10 years, and I've been doing my own fills, and uh, I wanted to make my own nitrox, and I just had a small compressor, so I needed to be able to do partial pressure blending, so I had to learn how to oxygen clean tanks and rebuild valves. and Simple green. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the Vance Harlow's, Vance Harlow's Airspeed Press book it says it's kitchen science, not rocket science, right? It's like doing the dishes, basically. My uh, brother works in a clean room. He calls himself a glorified uh, dishwasher. Yeah. Uh, so over the years, you know, I'd built a, I had a fill whip, and I had uh, tea bottles of oxygen. I was doing partial pressure blending. and So I've, I've been at this for a long time. But then my friend Tobin uh, left California. He, he closed his dive business, Deep Sea Supply, and moved to Nevada. And he had some leftover helium bottles. Mm. So he, he gave me a bunch of helium bottles. And at the time, I thought it was a lifetime supply. It was a bunch of bottles. Um, There's at least like 10, right? Well, it was uh, nine bottles. But uh, I didn't. You know, I, I went to a shop and took my trailer and got them all and brought them all to the house. And as I was working with them here, I realized that six were empty. Oh. And they, they were full in storage. It's just the helium leaked out. Helium yeah. doesn't like to stay in containers. And there was some slight problem with the valves, and over the years, it just all leaked out. So 
it was still a very generous gift. I still have, you know, some helium, but I didn't have the lifetime supply that I thought I did. But I thought I had a lifetime supply at the time. And then I had a good friend who was doing a lot of tech diving with me, Christian Norman. Mm-hmm. And a local dive store closed and wanted to sell us their setup. And it was advertised to be in good working condition. And Christian wanted to go in half. You have to remember that's by dive shops, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should have known better. I learned so much in this project. Uh, but Christian uh, agreed to pay half and he was going to you know, help me rebuild it. And we're going to move it here to the house. Uh, I had to build an extension on my garage and my concrete pad and everything. So I get the gear here. and We could do a whole show just on fill station uh, maintenance and, and how to inspect a system that you may be considering purchasing that was used. But long story short, every single component of this fill station had major issues. Uh, so I spent... You, you rebuilt a booster all by yourself, correct? It's worse than that. I, I, <laughs> I rebuilt the high-pressure compressor, a full rebuild of the high-pressure compressor, new bearings in the motor that drives it, new motor on the low-pressure compressor, rebuilt the drain valves on the high-pressure compressor, the manifold was put together all crazy, took it apart, cleaned it, put it back together in a better way. Most of the hoses were leaking, had to build new hoses. I learned how to work with, uh, with stainless steel tubing and swage lock fittings. Bought all the tooling for that. The Haskell died within a minute of operation after I got it here to the house. Had to completely rebuild the Haskell. That was about $3,000 in parts uh, on top of everything else. But you're not bitter at all. It it was all... At the time, I wasn't diving. I didn't have a boat. And it was all of my nights and weekends for a year working on this thing. And for the record, I would like to say that he is still married, despite all of this, almost <laughs> killing his wife and rebuilding an entire compressor by himself. So he must have some redeeming quality that uh, is superseding all of this, just to give but him credit where it's due. So I didn't have the helium that I thought I had. Then Christian quit diving as soon as we bought the fill station, So and he sold his boat. So I lost my tech dive buddy. I lost the boat we were going out on. So the whole premise behind getting a fill station got destroyed and it ate up a year of free time, but it's working now and uh, I've managed to put the puzzle back together. That's good. Yeah. And you're, you're diving, you're diving some of these more advanced sites more regularly now. Yeah. Well, it's, as we were talking earlier, it, uh, to be able to do tech dives requires lots of moving parts to, to come together. Um, you need a boat, either, a, you know, commercial tech trip, which are, they're kind of hard to put together. Uh, or a private boat that's set up well for tech diving. You need a buddy at the same level of training as you or higher. Right, and that's that's the tricky. The tricky part is tech diving is oftentimes almost team diving, right? It's not an individual sport. Yeah, you you have to. Uh, yeah, it's it's the only way to do it safely. Is if you're working with people who know what they're doing, are doing the same kind of things that you're doing, and yeah. you guys are on the same page. I do a lot of solo diving, single tank recreational, uh, even some sort of sketchy dives where uh, a buddy drops me off and I go down on the scooter and come up a mile. We'll get to your little scooter antics in a minute, sir. I will tell you, I will share with everyone uh, the sketch. One of the sketchier dives that I've ever done was with you in a scooter. (laughs) So I, I do fishing land. I'm, I'm totally okay with the high risk single tank, no deco dives. Uh, but for tech dives, 
I really want a good buddy. I want somebody who's had similar training. Uh, preferably, we've been in the water together a bit, so we understand you know what each other's doing. communication style. Mm, we, that's important. We understand yeah. our reactions. We uh, have similar decompression profiles. So, yeah, you got to have your buddy. You got to have the a way to get to the site, and you got to have all your gear. And just keeping tech gear, gear going is a challenge in itself. I mean, a typical dive is two tanks on your back, two on your side, maybe a dry suit bottle, five regulators, you know, a dry suit, a light, and a scooter. Uh, more than one light. Yeah. You want a light and a backup light, and then you need your shears just in case. It's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of gear to manage and have running and, you know, all the gases have to be filled. So it's just a... And with the price of helium these days, it's ridiculous to do it. Yeah, if, if I didn't have uh, some helium left over, I would not be doing open circuit diving right now for tech. Yeah. Um, and it's going to force me into a rebreather. I just can't keep doing recreational diving with the current helium cost. And the rebreather technology now is actually pretty... I mean, I don't know what you would go with. I know a couple of my buddies who've gotten into rebreather stuff some of the automation and some of the computer stuff with rebreathers seems to make it a lot easier and there's a lot more alarms and warning signs and things like that to help you know the death box not be a death box but uh i don't know if you would go that route or if you'd go old school something with a little bit more manual control uh, I, I like the computers yeah 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 they they seem they seem like a good addition to rebreather systems yeah, and you can, from, I'm not rebreather trained yet, I'm still learning about them, but from what I can understand, you can still run all of them manually. Yes, yes, um, of course. And I just, uh, I think the thing with rebreather diving is you want a strong local community of people diving the same unit. So you've got a knowledge base, you've got your local people that have experience that you can talk to. Um, it's also really helpful to have uh, somebody who can service them locally. Service them locally, or at least like uh, you can get replacement parts for things. Yeah, that's, like that's a big deal too. Yeah, that's just it. If there's a community of local people who are all diving the exact same rebreather, there's probably going to be parts that you can get your hands on if you know, something breaks on yours. Um, and I've got my eyes on one, and it's it wouldn't it wouldn't be. Wouldn't be a Revo, would it? Yeah, I think it's going to be a Revo. Wow. Just, just because we have a strong local Revo community. and Boy, the Revo community. A, a lot of people that I trust and respect are diving Revos. I think I know one of these people who you trust and respect, strangely <laughs> enough. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, they make good stuff. And they're definitely a time-tested brand. So, you're, so you think you'll eventually move into that. I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. If I keep tech diving, I'm going to have to because of the cost of helium. I mean, if helium was really cheap, I'd probably stick OC for a long time just to save the, the expense of moving to a rebreather. Yeah. Um, so your tech diving has taken you into some pretty interesting spots. Everything from the, uh, you know, the local submarine UB-88 to uh, actually you just went out on um, the caissons, which is, if I were to explain it to somebody who had never seen them, basically a giant concrete form for making bridges that they dumped out in the San Pedro is it San Pedro flats? Yeah, San Pedro shelf, the big San... flat big flat area out in front of LA Harbor. There's two of them out there in diveable depths. There's another one that's probably in deep water somewhere. Okay. 
and it's just like a giant round thing. Yeah, big big concrete cylinders. Uh, yeah, looks like uh, almost like three beer cans made out of concrete, like thirty foot tall and um, eighteen foot in diameter. They're only thirty feet tall. I don't know why I thought they were bigger. Yeah, than maybe thirty five feet tall. The shallow one, actually, the top of it's like one twenty something. Okay. And I can take you out, and if we drop the anchor well, you don't have to go to the bottom. You could dive the top of it. But I can take you out, and we can check out the shallow case on sometime. Okay, that'd be cool. We just have to do a good anchor drop so you don't have to go to the bottom. The bottom there is probably 145 or something. Seems a little deep. Yeah, not For deep. recreational? Yeah, you can pull it off. Ah. I appreciate your confidence. So what, what, what lures you to these spots, and how did you find them? Yeah, so. Let's back up for a second to the beach diving thing. So I was beach okay. diving like crazy, and yeah. uh, there were diving boards around. There was a diver.net and scuba board and places like that that we were all chatting on, you know, back in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, five time frame. And another local diver, Max Bottom Time, Bill Garner, saw my post, and I was diving all of the same shore diving spots that he had dove for years. Yeah. And I, I was very passionate about you know, what I was seeing and the fun I was having and things I was discovering. So we struck up a conversation and he agreed to take me out on his boat one day. And he had this small, maybe 20 foot aluminum boat called the Giant Stride. So he took me out on the Giant Stride and we dove the Olympic. And that was my first local shipwreck. And I absolutely- That's a good one. I absolutely fell in love with it. Yeah. This was small boat, just the two of us, left the boat unattended, you know, <laughs> kind of, kind of, you know, high Throw a dive flag up, hope for the best. A- absolutely. Yeah. A- high risk situation, you drop the anchor. I mean, I, I learned so much from Phil. Uh, we would drop the anchor, we'd get on the site well, make sure you drop the anchor, you know, on or near the wreck. Make sure you secure the anchor, put it somewhere where it's not going to go anywhere. Do your dive, plan, plan where you go so that you can get back to the anchor, unhook it from whatever you may have hooked it on. Uh, but I just I fell in love with that style of diving. There's a, there's a certain um, like uh, seaworthy independence that is embraced with that style of diving. It, it's, it's not the same doing that kind of dive as going out on a cattle call boat where everybody's diving <laughs> together. You get kicked in the face on your descent and you're on the line with five other Like doing a, a private boat dive where it's just you and another guy doing your thing. In the like, middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. No other humans around for miles. Where, where you know, somebody comes across your boat and they probably think you fell overboard if they, you know, and they're <laughs> like, what does that flag mean? You know, because not everybody knows a dive flag, unfortunately. But yeah, it's a different it's a different vibe altogether. So that changed my world. Uh, going out with Phil and doing my first wreck dive, and he had uh, a handful of numbers for other local wrecks. And one by one, we'd go out. He took me a little bit deeper wrecks. Do the Ace One, which is a you're right on the verge of a tech dive. Um, what is what is the Ace One at? That's one twenty five or so. Okay, is that the one out in front of Dana Harbor? No, that's the ACE. That's a different boat. Okay. Ace One's a World War II landing craft. It's upside down, and it uh, it was one of the few local spots that was guaranteed <laughs> matridiums. It had lots of big white matridiums. Oh, on cool! It. So just a gorgeous spot. Um, interesting story there is there's tons of matridiums on the Ace One. It's mm-hmm. just a couple of miles away from the Olympic. There's no matridiums on the Olympic, 
We thought it'd be really cool if there were Matridiums on the Olympic too, right? Oh no. <laughs> where is this going? So we did a dive uh, where I went down and swam a five gallon bucket around and we found Matridiums that were just attached to little tiny pieces of metal on the, the seafloor. So I didn't have to like rip them off the wreck or do anything damaging to them. I could yeah. just pick them up and collect them. And I collected a bucket full of Matridiums, got them up, we drove over to the, the Olympic, and I put Matridiums on the Olympic. God, I hope this isn't illegal. I have no idea about that. <laughs> yeah, I, it, if it's not illegal, it doesn't sound like a great idea. <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. So you drop them on... No, we don't. No, we don't. Do, I mean, we yeah, you didn't Olympic, drop them. But and we, we figured... You placed them on the Olympic. Yeah. We went over to the uh, Stern, which is a place where there's usually current. It's like uh, the sand is washed out from around it where there's your current flowing there. Okay. We, we strategically placed like seven of them. And then we visited them over a number of months. And Did they, they stay? They didn't make it. <laughs> you mean nature had already determined that Mitridians <laughs> were not meant to be there? <laughs> Interesting. That's so weird. Now I want to know why. I don't understand yeah. enough biology to know why they can live a couple miles away, but not there. But well, yeah. I wonder if it's because Matridians are—they're cold water. I, I say cold water, like as if not all of California is cold water, but they—they they do like a little bit chillier water. I'm wondering if it might be just a current. I'm issue. sure. Yeah, I'm sure it has to do with current and nutrients and maybe light. I mean, I, I got them from a little bit deeper place and put them in a little bit shallower place. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel bad they didn't make it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get you a shirt called the. And it's gonna say Matridian Killer. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I hope that's not illegal. I hope those invertebrates are okay. I will look it up before I publish this portion of the podcast. Whether or not this is a felony, uh, we have negligent Matridian uh, Matridian slaughter. But Bill and I, I mean, he had a handful of numbers but we wanted to find you know more spots and more interesting things and new spots and there's so many things that are not known even if they're not wrecks right like even if people don't like there's just random rocks out there and cool reefs that nobody knows about yeah absolutely uh so i wanted to understand just the lay of the land a little bit better so i went to west marine and i bought those big NOAA nav charts and I spread them out on the floor, and I started using a ruler and pencil and plotting out where the few known wrecks were and trying to just understand how things were arranged. And I thought there has to be a better way of doing this. I mean, this is tedious and, and not very much fun. And I've always had a job in technology involving computers and measurements. So I'm very tech savvy. And I thought there's got to be some mapping programs out there. And about this time, I, I learned about uh, Gary Fabian and Ray Arntz and some of the work they were doing. And uh, shortly, about the same time frame, they found the UB-88. Right. And I learned that there was a software called... Uh, this was like 19... I think it was 2003? Is that when they when found they it? Found 2003? UB-88? That might be right. Um, yeah, I think 2003-ish that... sounds actually right. Yeah, so uh, at the time... Yeah, August 27, 2003 is when okay. UB-88 was found. Uh, and I found out the software they were using cost between five dollars and $10,000 at the time. Software was really expensive back then. And I thought, well, let's, you know, it's, I don't have enough hobby money to throw at that. So I kept looking around and tried a few free things that didn't work very well. 
And then I finally found a company called Manifold that made a four or $500 package. And I thought, okay, I, I can spring for that. So I got that and started learning how to download data that the USGS and NOAA and others published and turn them into maps. And now you could just overlay all of your waypoints from your GPS. And even better, you could look at the data and find things that looked interesting and get their GPS coordinates. And then you could go out and dive them and see what was really there. That's and, pretty, that's a game changer. Yeah, and, and Fabian had a you know, uh, many year head start on me. He had ran into the same problem years earlier. And I have tremendous respect for him. I mean, he's a fantastic researcher and a really nice guy. Uh, and he made some fishing charts that are super cool and had a lot of the fishing spots on there before I even knew what GIS stood for. Yeah. Um, what does it stand for? Geographic Information Systems. Oh. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's a type of software. Just More like, obvious than I expected. Yeah, just like CAD software is a generic drawing package where you draw things. Right. This is like a mapping package where you're able to map things. And you can download data for the coastline. You can download some land stuff if you want or aerial imagery so that that part looks nice. And then you can download bathymetry, which is a 3D map of the bottom. Hmm. And then you can look around at the bathymetry and find interesting features that may be something. And then you just you go out there and you drive the boat over it. And if it looks good on sonar, maybe there's a little bump. Maybe there's a fish cloud. That's interesting. Yeah. Fish hang out on structure like yeah. wrecks, right? Right. Uh, and then you could either put a diver on it, or if you had a drop cam, you could put a drop cam on it. Uh, We're drop. How long have drop cams been out? I thought that was a relatively new thing. Nah, they've been around a, a long time, but they're they're really hard to use. Theoretically, it's it seems like a great concept. You drive the boat over a spot, and you drop the camera down, but it never points where you want it to point, and there's current and wind like pushing you one way or the other way. And, well, and also if you if you hang a weighted line off of any boat, it doesn't hang straight right it usually right. goes one way or the I'm other i'm imagining too it's probably dark down there so you probably need to attach a light or something right? okay, so, so <laughs> we would kid that you know we're the drop cam we just drop divers on everything yeah that's probably the best it, most inclusive way to determine but in the early days the, the data wasn't that good um it was 16 meter resolution so you would have a, a that's depth, not great a depth, a depth measurement every 50 feet or so Okay. So it would have to be a very big structure to show up on the data. But you got two layers of data. You got the bathymetry, which is a 3D map of the bottom, and you got what they call backscatter, which is essentially the loudness of the echo. So a hard metal thing would show up as a bright spot, have a very you know, hard echo, and soft mud bottom would show up as dark because it absorbed most of the sonar energy and didn't reflect much. Okay. So we could combine things that we saw on the bathymetry layer and on the backscatter layer and come up with these target lists. So for a couple of years, Bill and I would create these target lists during the week and would drive the boat around on weekends. And if we saw a fish cloud on something or just some interesting structure, we'd go down and, and see what it was. Um, and we found tons of things. Now, the things we found were, were well known. They were known by others, but people weren't going to tell us. Right, were. right, and that that is something that continues to this day. There's a lot of things that are known about, but nobody wants everybody to know about them. It's wreck diving and finding wrecks. Is there's some big personalities involved, and it, there's uh, there's customs and, and procedures and uh, 
people generally just don't give you numbers and it's seen as being incredibly rude to go up to someone and just ask for numbers. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know, I didn't know there was that kind of etiquette. Yeah, there absolutely is. There's, okay. a, there's a wreck diving etiquette. Matter of fact, one of the leaders of the California wreck divers once told me asking a man for his numbers is just like asking him if it's okay to sleep with his wife. <laughs> And he was he was maybe half kidding. Yeah, I, that seems I don't know, it's, but people take it incredibly uh, seriously. They have they, the California Wreck Divers Association. They have an interesting reputation outside of themselves. Like they've been known to uh, pirate some things off of wrecks that maybe they destroyed I, some wrecks in the process. No, and, the, the California Wreck Destroyers is a. Ter- a terrible name. It's not true. The ocean is destroying these wrecks faster than you can imagine. If of course, but if there's cool stuff on there that they can you know take and preserve and show off once a year at scuba show. So have you have you heard of the story of the Star of Scotland? Like allegedly, there was a, a really nice wooden like wheel on the wheelhouse of the Star of Scotland at one point, and somebody decided they were going to get it out of there, and they decided to blow up the roof use some sort of explosives on the roof and it collapsed it all in. So the wheelhouse is gone now. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, this is hearsay. I've never heard I don't of know if it's thing. even, I don't even know if it's attributed to those guys. But yeah, I just hear there's a lot of desire to like recover artifacts more so than just no wrecks. I don't know if that's true. Some people want any artifact. If they can get a steel valve it, you know, all yeah. rusted up, just a, a big rusty turd. They'll still take it. Uh, other people want brass or really nice things they can put on yeah, the wall. Yeah, brass, people I've, like that. I'm not a huge collector of, of treasures. I'm mostly just like looking around, but I'm not going to judge somebody else. If they want to swim around down there and find a cool brass thing and spend the time to recover it and then polish it up and maybe they show it off every now and then at a scuba show or some sort of meeting or the dive and surf yard sale, more power to them. If that thing is, the ocean is going to dissolve that thing. And That's true. If these, were, if these were national treasures and very special wrecks around here, you know, maybe I'd feel somewhat differently about it. A lot, yeah. A lot of them are not intentional wrecks. A lot of them are just things that are essentially detritus. Well, since we're on the topic of recovering things from wrecks, why don't you tell me about that glass you're drinking out of right there? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, so this is fun. There's a, a shipwreck called the Prosper uh, over the, near uh, the Isthmus of Catalina. Yeah. And it's in about 190 feet. And it was blown up for the movie Captain Blood uh, in the early 1900s. Okay. And it's mostly just a, a pile of ballast stone with a little bit of wood and a little bit of rigging here and there. You, you'd never recognize it as a shipwreck. Right. If you didn't know. It's more like a pile of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's one of my favorite dive spots because there's there was lots of old bottles down there. Okay, cool. And uh, on one of the dives, I found a, just a small glass. But this thing is 100 years old now, and it spent you know, 100 years on the ocean bottom. And it's frosted a little bit from rolling back and forth in the sands, a little bit sandblasted. And it's just a, a very special thing to me. So it's my drinking glass. That's kind of cool. I mean, considering how much wreck diving you do, and the fact that you have a, a drinking glass from a wreck that you were on, I'd say I like it. I think it's a pretty cool deal. It just makes me happy. Yeah. Cheers to that. Cheers. And I found a, a 
cool brass doorknob down there. It was oh, laying yeah. in the sand with all the parts intact. Nice. So I have that, and I have got a handful of small bottles. And I don't feel like taking those things is detracting from the wreck, and it's going to make someone else's no, no, no. experience. You're not destroying the wreck. Yeah, I'm not blowing it up or cutting giant holes and things. Like, yeah, yeah. I think everybody would agree that's poor form. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, well, so what would you say is like, uh, I, I, I know you had a hand in finding the UB, discovering the UB88 for yourself, but besides that, like, what would you say is some of your favorite spots that you've discovered? I, I guess I don't, am I asking you to sleep with your wife? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, no, I'm not asking for numbers, but like uh, no, maybe I... cool experiences that you've had in discovering wrecks. I mean, uh, I know we recently talked about uh, a giant, uh, was it an engine block or, or wench or something that you found near a local dive site in, in Redondo Beach on your scooter? Oh, yeah, that's a hydro hoist. Hydro there. hoist, that's yeah, what it so was. it's a boat lift. So hydro hoist is, if you don't want to leave your boat in the water, there are these two pontoons that are normally submerged, and it has the equivalent of a boat trailer mounted to them. Okay. So you can drive up on this thing and then you pump the water out of those pontoons and it raises your boat out of the water. Right. So you don't have to have bottom paint. Just keep, keeps your, your boat protected a little bit. I found one of those uh, from Vets Park on my scooter one day. Yeah. And I was out messing around by myself. It was a gorgeous day. 60 foot viz, maybe even better. And I wanted to do a long distance scooter trip. So now when I, you say a long distance scooter trip, what was your total like uh what's the what's i guess terrain covered we're talking like a half mile well on a similar trip i towed a gps on the surface i had a a line going up to a buoy with a gps and a waterproof housing up there because i wanted to see exactly where i went because you don't know where you go otherwise of course yeah Uh, and i did this with claudette dorsey i've done a couple of these dives with her on one dive we went 1.2 miles on another dive we went two miles so cover a lot of ground. That's a lot of ground. And if I'm by myself, I can go even faster because I don't have to look for anybody. I don't have to slow down. Yeah, you have you have the like supercharged version of a scooter, don't you? What I, it what is this? What it, what model do you have? It's the Cuda Fury. Yeah. So it's a, it's like a Cuda 400, but with a really big battery made by Deep Sea Supply, and it's it's got a couple hour runtime. Uh, even at high gear. So when I'm by myself, I don't have to look for anybody. I don't have to slow down. I don't have to get off the trigger. So I can spend 70 to 90 minutes running a couple hundred feet a minute. Wow. And this was a gorgeous day. So I was way out there. I was getting near my turn point, my half half air, basically. Yeah. Uh, And I see this giant school of fish. And it's I can see forever. This is amazing that day. So I hang out with the school of fish because it was so cool. And the sea lion comes by, and he's doing his thing, so I'm hanging out with the sea lion. And then right off the edge of this, I see a structure. Now, there's not supposed to be a structure out here. This is a, supposed to be sand barrens in the edge of the canyon, right? Yeah. So I go over, and that's where I found that hydro hoist. Oh, that's And cool. it had the halibut by it. It's packed full of lobster. There's lots of rockfish around it. So I hung out there longer than I should, and now I don't have enough air to get back the same way that I came. <laughs> I'm not going to make it all the way back. Okay. So I'm like, okay, change of plans, got to do something different. Right. And I had some idea of where I was on the canyon, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go. Yeah, because like, unlike most people, you actually have a three-dimensional map of this part of the, 
underwater ground. So you have a you have yeah, a I've, top view in your head of where you are. Yeah, there's bathymetric data that I've spent dozens of hours staring at and playing with. So I, I know the shape of the canyon very well. I have some idea of where I am just because I know how fast I was going and for how long. And I've kind of been this area before. So I thought I'm just going to go uh, due east, and that should get me back to the shore. And I'm I'm just running wide open because I'm you're worried about my air situation now. Right. And and surface swims with scooters are not fun. And I'm I'm doing at least 250 feet a minute, if not 300 feet a minute. And yeah. I run for 10 minutes, and I'm still not getting very shallow. And I'm, I went halfway up in the water column too, just so I'm not all the way at the bottom. I'm like right. 40 feet. Okay. And I'm I'm going and going and going, and there's sand. And at some point, I see a a huge black sea bass like swimming along this is crazy i've never seen this black sea bass like i saw everything on the a beach dive right? yeah right and then i see the pier pilings for topaz jetty ah, so i'm like okay. okay at least i'm in the right neighborhood but i'm still not at the shoreline yet right and then finally i surface and i was in a good spot i was over there by the break that little jetty that sticks the out in the jetty, topaz. Yeah. and i was able just to scoot up the coast and oh, you know, in 10 feet so it all worked out um, so, I, so was this black sea bass in open water at 40 feet, like just swimming around? Probably like 60 feet, and he was heading down into the canyon. I think he was over by the pier pilings, the Topaz Jetty oh, interesting. pilings. And I think he, I spooked him, and he headed back to the canyon. And I think it was a black sea bass because it was an animal of that size, and it wasn't the sea lion. So okay. it was either a, a shark or a black sea bass. Okay. But it was, it was very large. I've had a friend see, uh, I mean, well, I mean, I've seen sharks there, but also I've, I've had friends who've seen thresher sharks there. Yeah, it could have been something like that. I, mean, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get close enough to get really good video, and I wanted to chase it down on my scooter, but again, I was already kind of in a bad spot. And needed, right. Don't make... I need don't... to end this dive. It was, it was an amazing dive. I could have stayed out there all day. If I had a rebreather, if I was on a Revo, I would have spent the afternoon out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Um, that is one of the dive spots that I, I tell people, like, it's addictive to dive there only because it's like playing the lotto, man. Because you can go out there and see nothing but sand, but then you also go out there and see a shark. And then you can go out there and see nudibrinch. And you yeah. go out there and see, like, you just, it doesn't matter when you go there, like, you don't know what you're going to see. I've seen everything from seahorses to squid to everything else. And yeah. that's, that's just the same with any dive, really. Yep, that's you, true. You that never true. know. You could go to a great spot that's normally packed full of life, and it can be sterile. Yep. You can see nothing but rocks and you know, maybe some kelp and almost nothing. Or it can be an amazing day where a harbor seal comes up and gives you a hug. Yeah. Or you, 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 know, you see giant shovel-nosed guitar fish or bat, multiple bat rays. Just, you never know. And, and you can have both those experiences at the same dive spot 100 yards apart, right? Like, yes, yeah. these guys over here saw had an amazing dive and you had nothing terrible. And the thing I've learned is you never give up on a dive. Yeah, as long as your face is in the water, there's still a chance you're going to see something cool. I had a, a dull dive one time off Palace Birdies at the archery range here. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. where it is. It's on the south side. Yeah, so dove that. It wasn't great viz, and we were lobster hunting. Didn't catch many lobsters. And I'm, we're trying to get out, and we're in, like, waist-deep water, and I look down, there's a halibut. And it's decent size. It's, like, two feet long. Yeah, that's then, legal. Then, and this is in the surf zone. Like, the surf is right there, waist-deep water. 
And then right beside it is a bigger halibut. This one's like three feet long. <laughs> and then right beside it is a bigger halibut. No way. This one had to be four feet long. They were lined up right in the surf zone, just side by side. And I just sat there looking at these things for a good five minutes. Did, did you have a spear or anything? Like nothing? I had a lobster bag. Oh. You know, and I'm thinking, how in the world can I... They won't there's fit. No there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. But the coolest part of the dive was me standing up with my fins off, bent over at the waist, so I can look at these giant halibut. Yeah, and there's probably somebody on shore going like, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> right? Isn't that how that always goes? Yeah, yeah. And at Flat Rock, I've had dives. You know, there's mediocre dives. and. You're getting out, and there's a like a cool shark, a yeah. small one, a couple, leopard sharks, yeah, a couple feet long. Uh, same thing. I did a dive at uh, Shaw's Cove in Laguna Beach, and you know, people will pop up out of the water in about ten, fifteen feet, kick in, and this and that. Well, I stayed under the water, and I swam along the rocks till you get right in by the shore, and in the shallows, we're talking like three feet deep, two feet deep. There's a clutch of maybe five or six juvenile leopard, leopard sharks. Mm -hmm. We're talking a foot long. And they're just swimming around back and forth. And I spent the rest of my, you know, my rest of my dive just sitting there watching them swim back and forth, you know, just chilling. And it's like, nobody would look for them there. Yeah, I and saw, they just happened to be there. I saw a baby Maury eel in the surf zone at Haggerty's no one time. A, baby. A, a tiny one. What is it? Like, okay, so I've seen a, ba a juvenile or a baby uh, wolf eel once. Scared the heck out of me. It looked like a ribbon eel. It was flipping all around. It was orange. It was out of its hole? I was looking for lobster, so of course I didn't have my camera. Yeah. And I flip over a rock, and this orange ribbon comes swooping out at me, and it scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. I had no idea what I was looking at, and then I just started doing some research, and I was like, I think it was a I think it was a wolf eel. It was, that's the only wolf eel I, I've ever seen. I wouldn't know what one looks like as a... Tiny one. It one. was way more orange than you would expect it to be. Yeah. Yeah, and it was insane. But the mores, are they the same color as the adults? Yeah, this looked like a the same color and shape and everything, but it was like the diameter of a hot dog wiener. Was, oh, it, man, that's crazy. Yeah, like a tiny little guy. That's a, that, They're kind of fun when they're that size. Yeah, and I've seen a mantis shrimp. Like, just never give up. Like, it's... I, there's so many dives where the very tail end of the dive, where I'm almost getting out of the water, you see a cool thing. I don't, I don't say this lightly, but the most adorable thing that I've ever seen, um, scuba, boy, it wasn't even scuba diving, it was from a boat, okay? Um, I saw a, a juvenile mako shark about a foot long, like it must have been like a foot long, and the brightest blue you've ever seen, but as far as baby animals... I was like, that thing's amazing. It looked like a stuffed animal. Yeah. It didn't even look real. I was like, is that when I, am I seeing that? Like, you know, sometimes <laughs> you see those juvenile animals and you're like, what am I seeing right now? What is that? It was really, really cool. I felt like I could just reach down and grab him by his little dorsal fin and pull him onto the boat. And the only Mako I've seen was it doing deco on the UB-88. No kidding. So we're coming up. It was oh, me, yeah. me and me Christian Norman and Tobias. Uh-huh. And we're, I'm... A little bit lower than them they made it to 70 feet first so we're at 70 feet and i think they already done their gas switch and i'm working on my gas switch and i see both of them looking up and then i see tobias point and i thought it's going to be a sea lion right because sea lions come down all the time all the time and it's a shark and i've got it's just in the green water and i have no distance reference so i don't know how far away it is or how big it, it is it looks pretty big but i don't know if it's a small shark that's pretty close or a really big shark far away 
So I'm kind of moving my head a little bit, trying to figure it out. And I'm unclipping my GoPro because I wanted to get video evidence of this thing. And it wasn't moving a muscle. It was totally stopped. And that was the weird thing. I've never seen a shark just sit there. Huh. Like it, it was just floating totally still like a log. Was there current? No. N- nothing significant. It, it, it just was able to stop. And it stopped for maybe five seconds after I saw it. And as I was unclipping the GoPro, it shot off. Of course. And it was like human sized. It wasn't yeah. gigantic, but it was. Hey, that's pretty big fish. Well, they start to get. They start well, but for mako, that's a big mako. Like okay. they find baby seals in the size, like six foot, seven foot makos. They find okay. baby seals in those guys. Okay. Um, there's a great uh video from this, uh, boat captain out in Pentar Harbor of this uh about six seven foot. Mako swimming around and he's taking video of it. He's a, he's actually a charter boat captain, and you could see something coming out of his mouth, and you're like, and it looked like a line, and it looked almost like a fishing line. I was like, I had to message him. I was like, what is this? Oh yeah, that's the intestine of a seal. He was eating a seal when we found him. And I'm like, oh my god, wow. They're like Nat Geo going on up there. I was like, pretty hairy. Yeah. This thing just shot off, shot off really fast. They're so quick. Man. And then uh, we were a little freaked out, looking around a bit for it, and didn't see it the rest of the dive. When you see one of those things move in the water, you realize that if it wanted to, you could do nothing. There's oh, nothing you could do to stop it. Yeah, you, in my, in your mind, you think, okay, I've, I've, like a UB88. I got a dive knife. <laughs> well, you got you got an hour of deco, right? If you right. UB88 for 25, 30 minute bottom time, you've got almost an hour of deco. You can't go to the surface. It's going to have a really ugly ending. So if something starts bothering you, you really hope it's like the Jaws movie where it circles for a while, so you see it. And it gets for pro- about 45 minutes, it gets, please. It gets, it gets progressively closer, and then you're able to like unclip one of your deco bottles and bang it with it. Or No, 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 it, dude. You shove that in his mouth, it bites down, and it explodes. Yeah, Didn't you watch the movie? <laughs> Come on. Maybe you can offer it your scooter, and it bites on your scooter and realizes it's not tasty, and it goes away. Yeah. But yeah, in real life, this thing knows you're there. You don't know it's there. It knows where you're looking. It can move. Well, you, you saw the video of the guys doing deco on the backside. They were on the Infidel, backside oh, yeah. of Catalina. Yeah. And they got, they had a 16-footer circling for a while. That's amazing video. Yeah. That would get a little freaky. 16-foot is a big well, fish. Yeah. And if I can see it in this clear water like Catalina, I feel a lot better about the situation. 100%. When I'm doing deco in an 8-foot viz or something like that, it's... It's a mind game. Really, you could, you could freak yourself out. Oh, I've had conversations. There is, when you're doing a free ascent, like you can't find the anchor line, or if you're just doing a short dive and you misplaced yourself and you got to do, do a safety stop or a deco yep. just in the green, it's your free- mind plays tricks on you. You're by yourself and you're out there and you think, what if the big shark just looking up at me and I'm a silhouette and it's just going to hit me at 30 miles an hour? Ah. And I just, I tell myself, I'm more likely to see a dolphin right now than I am a shark. See, I go the opposite direction. I say, I'm going to roll and it's going to bite my tank. (laughs) That's the way I, not, it just makes it so that I can finish my deco. It's not going to work. I know that. Statistically, I'm so much more likely to see a dolphin or a mola mola or a sea turtle than I am a big shark. Yeah. I just tell myself, quit thinking about the shark. Think about the cool thing. There's probably a dolphin down there. Look for it, you know, just. Or just chill. Have you so have you had that experience here in California? Have you seen a, a dolphin free swimming? I've, 
I've got 10 minutes of video of me playing with a pod of dolphins, me and Claudette Dorsey, off ship rock. No way. Yep. Dolphins, I have jumped in the water in front of schools of like 15 or 30 dolphins, and they've avoided me like the plague. You need a scooter. They don't like swimming people. Ah. We're, we're slow and dumb and no fun if you're swimming. If you have a scooter, now you're interesting. I see. That is why I, so, that makes more sense. So Claudette and I had scooters and we were playing around off Ship Rock. And a couple of dolphins came up and I was blown away. I'm like, oh my God, they're dolphins. You know, we got up beside them. And then they blasted off and we thought, oh, that was a neat experience. We saw a few seconds of two dolphins. They came back with their buddies. And there was like seven dolphins. Oh my god. And for 10 minutes, we played with these dolphins and we were going as fast as we could on, you know, high end scooters. Oh, and they were and probably just blazing past you. They would slow down and wait for us. Oh, that's because great. it was fun. Oh, yeah. But they don't care about uh, staying horizontal. They go up or down just as fast as they go horizontal. And I almost blew my ears out that day because I'm trying to video them. So I've got the scooter in one hand, camera in the other hand, so I can't touch my nose to clear. Oh my and gosh. They, if they went down, I would go down, and I didn't want to stop and you know, grab my nose and miss them and mess up the video. So I beat up my ears so bad that day, but it was fantastic. Oh my God, and I couldn't were, even imagine. They were so close that I couldn't see the whole dolphin. I would have to scooter away from them to see the whole animal because they, they were that close. I may just buy a scooter based off that story alone, and I don't think I'm the only one. That sounds amazing. That's, and I, I've seen dolphins, I think, three times. Once I was kicking, and it's just a, a glancing, you, know, you see it for a second, it goes away. Right. The other time is I'm diving the UB-88 with uh, uh, John Sampson and, and Karen Cleveland, and I drop a GoPro as I'm getting in the water. There's a borrowed GoPro from a friend. I dropped the whole thing. On accident or on yeah, purpose? Yeah, on accident. I, I, I was trying to wear one of those head rigs. It's like oh, a head, yeah, yeah. head gear. It's the first time I'd ever touched one of those. And I, I think I roll off the boat, and the GoPro just sinks and goes away. So and it's a borrowed GoPro. So now I'm in it for you know, three or four hundred dollars. I have to buy the GoPro for a friend. So they jump in, and we go down to the wreck, and I tell them I'm going to go look for the GoPro because I had some idea of you know where it was. It was a fantastic viz day. So, okay, so they're diving, they're doing the UB88, and I'm this on is, a GoPro hunt. I yeah, and I, I said I'm going to go for two minutes at. My cruise speed, 150 feet a minute, uh, away from the UB-88. And I've got a big compass on the scooter, so I was just going to take a compass heading. And if I see it, great. And I was sort of zigzagging a little bit. If I don't see it, fine. So I go my two minutes. I'm like 300 feet away from the wreck now, by myself, 190. Again, not the, not the smartest What move. could go wrong? I know. Bad idea. So I don't see it, so I turn around. I'm heading back, and I'm not seeing the wreck. And I'm, a little, and I'm like... Oh, this was a dumb move. I shouldn't have done this. A bad idea. Beat myself up. And I hear some noises and I look over to my side and there's a pot of dolphins. And again, it was like five to seven of them. How deep are you at this? On the bottom, 190. Oh, Jesus. So I thought, okay. I thought, well, this is cool. Like, at least I got some buddies here. Like, they can't really help me if I get in trouble, but it's, it's kind of fun. I didn't feel alone. I felt like this is suddenly I felt comfort. Right. And here's the dolphins. And I thought, I'm just, and they're kind of going this general direction I thought I needed to go anyway. So I'm just going to go with these guys for a few minutes here and enjoy it. And they went right over to the wreck. They kind of like, 
it seems like they took me to the wreck, right? We're going to say they guided you back. <laughs> it's another story I, of Dolphin yeah, saving I, man. I, I no, no, no. I this is I can't say that. No, no, no. A hundred percent. That is the only possibility. I, I remember thinking, this is super cheesy. I'm not going to tell people the Dolphins <laughs> guided me to the wreck. The Dolphins guided you back, man. Just, but, just embrace the story. But it kind of felt that way. And I made it back to the wreck, and I hooked back up with John and Karen, and it was all fantastic. You're like, did you guys even see the Dolphins? They, they didn't see <laughs> of them. Of course not. Because they guided you back to the wreck, and, and then I they left. I didn't have a GoPro to film them because oh, I yeah. just lost the GoPro, right? They're probably like, yeah, 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 Right, Ross. exactly, sure. Uh-huh, okay, yeah, yeah, we saw Blue Whale, okay. <laughs> That's great. Wow, so you've had quite a few dolphin experiences. Yeah, they like scooters. They like it when you're going fast and being interesting. I can imagine they would find a regular scuba diver, like, slow, clumsy, and just not good at yeah they probably water. think you're like some sick animal that they need to avoid they don't want to catch the you whatever you got <laughs> you were like ooh, we don't want to get what he's got look yeah, at him he's swimming in circles yeah but you're you're interesting when you're going fast no oh, that's true well i mean listen i uh we i had a little birthday cruise out to santa cruz island uh last weekend and uh we had uh, two visits by dolphins on the boat which was pretty fun i always liked that and the first group was actually feeding on what looked like a bait ball. Like there was birds oh, dropping yeah. and all kinds of stuff. And they ditched the bait ball to come right on the bow of the boat. So if that tells you anything about their level of playfulness, they'll yeah. abandon food to come hang out and play. That's, that's a dolphin for you. Yeah. The, the thing that was really surprising to me is they, they have a, a lot of different body movements and postures and it, almost like facial expressions, but I think they're doing it with their whole body. I think they're using their bodies to communicate. You're talking like somebody who's had way too much time with dolphins, my friend. I gotta be <laughs> I got, honest. I got 11 minutes total. Right? Yeah, okay. Well, and now you think they're winking at you. Okay. No, but, but they don't just swim like a fish swims. I mean, a fish just kind of does its thing. It locomotes from one place to another. Yeah, yeah. The dolphin was conching their backs and scrunching up at times and Interesting. Yeah, they were moving in ways that it seemed like it was just expressive. Interesting. Expressive. I, that, that tracks, like they're a social animal. You would expect them to have, like, if you think of any social animal, you think about, like, wolves. Like, there's all kinds of behaviors that they have. Yeah, postures and the hair raising on the back and hunching. Rolling on the head, ground, yeah. submissiveness, exactly, dominance, exactly. like, all that kind of stuff that goes along with, like, setting up stuff it would make sense that that would be in dolphin culture as well yeah i'm sure some dolphin researchers rolling their eyes right now going this is well known it's been researched for 100 years these guys are idiots uh, i mean and all of that is true <laughs> <laughs> we know nothing about dolphins apparently but I, I was just really surprised that they're very different than a fish as far as their movements and well, it's something doing. that you probably, as another social creature, picked up on right away, which is probably unexpected because you'd never thought about it before. It was so obvious that they were waiting up for me. They would yeah. accidentally go too fast, and they would stop and let me catch up so that we could swim together some more. Yeah. And it was just it was a like, crazy... And Claudette's right there with me. So it's me and Claudette and these dolphins, and we're just having a blast, and we're just... It was the most amazing thing. And it's, it didn't have the greatest camera, so it's you know not amazing video, but it's some of well, the most special video I'll ever take. Well, how how much has camera technology improved in the last 10, 15 years? Oh it's amazing. Gosh, yeah. So that's so great. I still, my best dolphin experience is I, I jumped in front of a pod and they did a swim by. 
So I was floating on mm-hmm. the surface, and they kind of swam underneath me and checked me out, looked at me and said, no. And then yeah, just kept going. But it was cool. still awesome. That was an amazing experience. I mean, it's no Bahamas where they have the speckled dolphins and they're swimming all along you and messing with you and stuff like that, but it was still pretty cool. Yeah. That's great. So you're... So the scooter dives, that's kind of your jam right now. And I'll I'll take this opportunity to talk about, you lent me a scooter in a recent dive, and you took me to a known fishing spot because you wanted to go hunt for anchors. (laughs) And I was like, all right, like, I'm sure he knows what he's doing. And we dropped down at the Azores. Azores. Is it the Azores? Yes. Sorry, the Azores is the islands in the right. Atlantic. I, the Azores is the artificial reef off Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach, yeah? Yeah, named after Captain Russ Azores, from what I understand. Okay. And I was actually a little freaked out about diving this spot before because uh, I think Drew had mentioned that like the last time you guys were there, there were fishing boats everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's really heavy recreational fishing traffic. So there's lots of fishing boats there. Uh, it's hard to anchor. Uh, it's, it's an anchor graveyard. You know, there's dozens right. and dozens of anchors. It's so easy to get snagged there that it can be hard to get your anchor back. Well, you realize that as soon as you drop down underwater because the entire reef is nothing but like a crisscross of pier pilings, which is an anchor nightmare yep. if you cannot dive. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the coolest experiences I've had underwater because shooting through all of that with pier pilings sticking out and all of the sea fans growing on top and the sides and the bottom of them, it was a really cool dive. But in the back of my head, I was just like, don't go into deco. Don't surface where you're not supposed to surface. I really wanted to make it back to the anchor line on that dive. I didn't want to be, I didn't. Like, we hadn't dove much together. I definitely didn't want to be a problem and ruin anybody else's dive by doing something stupid. Um, it was one of my more high-stress dives. It's an advanced spot. And it's, a, it's deep. It's 90 feet. Yeah. Uh, and you can get hit by a boat pretty easily there. So I try to never surface without shooting a surface marker buoy or a lift bag. And even that's no guarantee. That's pretty nope. small compared to you know, what they're looking for. Well, and, and sometimes... You get an inexperienced, you know, boat captain out there, and they'll go like, "Oh, what is that? Let's go over there," yeah, and exactly. they'll they'll, they'll park themselves I've, right on top of you. I've had to pull on my surface marker buoy before, like, "Oh, this is a cool floaty thing. I'm gonna take," <laughs> and I'm pulling back. Leave let, it alone. Yeah, let it go. This is not a mylar balloon from <laughs> Disneyland. Um, yeah, it's. But it's, what what'd you think going just flying around around those pilings? And, oh, uh, under and over and. As soon as I get a cool two grand to play with, I'm going to get myself a scooter. Like, those things are really, really fun. Um, it, it gives you superpowers, Ian. That's underwater, the, that... the mobility is completely different. I, I still, like, even your stories about traveling around, uh, even at Veterans Park and some of the other spots, like, the ground that you're able to cover and the things that you're able to find in a single dive is just it's really, really cool. It gives you superpowers. It lets you do things that you could never, ever do, uh, kicking. Yeah. And it's also a great safety tool. If you're a little bit too positive or a little bit too negative, you can just use the scooter to overcome that until you have a chance to sort it out. Or if somebody else has some trouble and you're trying to help them, or if you need to move the anchor because you drop the anchor in the middle of the wreck, you need to move over the edge of the wreck. 
I've got 70 pounds of thrust to work with there. So I don't have to grab the anchor, fill my BC up so that I'm kind of floaty, take it somewhere, risk accidentally letting go of the anchor and having a problem. You can just overcome it with the machine. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really cool tool for underwater. And they're way more affordable now than they used to be. Like I... They're getting there. Uh, so we're, we're getting really good lower-cost versions now with the, the black tip. Yeah, the black tip seems to be the one. They had a couple problems with the first generation, but it seems like they've worked them out for the most part. It's, a, it's not a $5,000 scooter, right? Nope. It's not, not an all-aluminum body with you know, latches. and uh, I think they had to make some design uh, uh, compromises, exactly. Trade-offs. So, we'll call them trade-offs. To, to keep the cost down. Yeah. Um, and they're... A few people have had some trouble, but I know lots of other people have had no trouble. Right. Right, yeah. So I mean, I, the old adage, you get what you pay for, still still applies, but I mean, I think for what it is, it's a great, a great option. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole concept of power tool batteries and being able to use off-the-shelf DeWalt power tool batteries that you can still travel with, and you can buy new ones if there's a flood, and they're not this custom special thing that requires a lot of extra labor and cost and it's a brilliant design yeah using just pvc and injection molded plastics to bring the cost way down uh i think it's going to open up scooter diving to a huge segment of the dive population that would not have considered a scooter before uh you're speaking to one of them <laughs> i will probably be on that bandwagon and it, right ab- it just absolutely gives you superpowers well i i, I think uh you know, I think the dolphin thing, more than anything, is going to sell. <laughs> sell some scooters. I think you need to pitch that to whoever's running Black Tip or any other scooter company, because that sounded pretty epic. So, you have searched the seafloor with scooters. You've searched the seafloor with maps. Um, you've seen all this stuff. Like, what, what is your takeaway? Like, where, what is your next step? What is the thing you want to do next? You fill your own gases. Yeah, I guess. That, I guess rebreather diving. Yeah, well, I guess the next logical step would probably be uh, hypoxic trimix. Right now, I'm just normoxic trimix, so I'm really limited to about 220 feet. Yeah, can't go much deeper than that, or the oxygen starts to become a problem. Yeah. Uh, but with the cost of helium, I don't think I'm going to do that on open circuit. Yeah. So the the next step in my my dive training and experience will probably be getting a rebreather. I've got to take a, I got to put the training wheels back on, right? I got to go do a whole bunch of shallow dives on the rebreather and get good at it, comfortable, and make sure I know what I'm doing. And then I've got to start the tech road on it, regular trimix, and then eventually a hypoxic trimix. So I'll probably do that. I'm still weighing it, looking around, and trying to understand the cost. Um, do you have, do you have, uh, uh, wrecks that you're shooting for yeah there there are a number of military wrecks at san clemente island that i haven't seen there are a number yes yeah, their target practice land out there yeah but there's some just spectacular wrecks some destroyers out there the burns the vamen yeah uh that are and what what kind of depths are we talking like 250 to 350 yeah deeper yeah um and i'd really like to see those and the, the Mount Everest dive for me is the Matterhorn. I really want to go to the Matterhorn one day 
and uh, th that'd be better done on a rebreather than open circuit. Yeah, that's what, what's the depth on that? Well, the top of it is almost recreational, like 130, 140, but it's just a tiny little pinnacle. This looks like an upside-down ice cream cone, right? Yeah. And then I think the first little plateaus are in the 220-ish, 240-ish sort of range. So you, you need to be able to do mid-twos to do a meaningful dive there. Okay. And uh, where is that located? Uh, on the other side of Santa Barbara Island. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. And so it's a seamount. What what kind of stuff is down there? Like, is it is it more to see if you can get down there, or is it more like there's actually really cool things to see once you get there? because you know, those are two different yeah, goals and tech, right? Yeah, it's it's absolutely covered in life, <coughs> from what I understand. I mean, covered in what? Covered in life. It's just oh, okay. Yeah, just solid you know, coronactus and matridiums and just life on top of life. Um, and I would like to think there's fish around. I, I mean, I've, I've seen some dives where there's almost no fish. I read old reports where there are, there are tons of fish. So I, I don't know if the fishing pressure has changed the nature of the spot or what. Those deep-sea seamounts seem to be pretty loaded, from yeah, what I can tell. You would think if some cool stuff was around, that's where it would be, right? Yeah. Um, but I, would just, I mean, people talk about Tanner's Bank, and they talk about Cortez Bank. Yep. These are the same kind of concept, just seamounts in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, I, and I want to dive those with a scooter and with a buddy, so I can travel a little bit. Uh, those I mean, are, those places are notorious for hunting. Like, those yeah. are the, some of the best hunting spots you can go to yeah. for lobster, for white sea bass for all kinds of stuff so i've still got some runway i've, I've never done those spots uh the deep wrecks at san Clemente. i'm really interested in uh santa barbara island is a, a beautiful place and it has fantastic bathymetry like one meter resolution yeah so you can make maps of this place and see every little rock and there's some ledges there that just run for some large fraction of a mile and on a scooter, it'd be amazing. You could just drop down on the ledge and just cruise till your turn pressure and then come back. So nav would be easy. And guaranteed, you're going to see sharks and black sea bass or really cool stuff. So, yeah, I've heard. I have not, I've not seen it myself because the, the, the two times that I've been out of Santa Barbara Island, the conditions were not so that it would be doable. But I've heard that like there's a wall on the kind of south uh, southwest side that near the arch where you can drop down and yeah. it's just a sheer wall that goes you know to nothingness it's, and it's supposed to be a pretty epic dive. The maps for the place are unbelievable. We've got to spend some time on computers sometimes just so I can show you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, places like that where you've got some natural feature that you can just follow. Yeah, yeah. For the perfect scooter. Yeah. Cover huge ground. Gosh, um, I can imagine. But you go out to those things too. You could roll up with a scooter and run into a white shark. Eat pretty easy. Yeah, I, I don't know what a, what a white shark would do with a scooter diver, but well, you got the scooter, so you can offer them the scooter if they want to chew on something. <laughs> that's right. So that's perfect situation. If you see it, like if it just sneaks up on you, you're done. But yeah, yeah, yeah. If you see what's going on, that you've got something to hide behind and work with there. It's an ideal situation. Well, it's funny. I've done a lot of shark diving. And uh, I'm never afraid because I usually have a giant camera to shove in the face of the shark. Yeah, exactly. You got something yeah. to use, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, back up, buddy. I got this giant tube thing yeah. that will go in your face. It's, 
it's different. I, and, that's a good point. Well, the cool thing about white sharks is they never eat anybody. I don't know of <laughs> a single case where a white shark has consumed a person or bit them multiple times. It's usually one big investigatory bite, and they figure out you're not what they want, and they move along. The people that get gotten are the ones that it's the, the investigatory bite is different than like the strike bite, right? Yeah. Like the people who get gotten, like, and there's some pretty gnarly stories up in Northern California that seems to be the spot where like spear fishermen got it. Like yeah. there's a there's a show that went through all this, you know, the shark terror shows. Yeah, it's. And there one, was a guy, guy who got lost a, his head. Randy Fry, right? It took his head off. Is that is that I, the one? I believe that was his name. I hope I'm not messing that up. But yeah, yeah, I think it was Randy Fry, and the, the investigatory bite removed his head, and obviously you can't Ooh. recover from that. But they found the head later, and they found the body. The shark didn't eat him. Like the bull sharks in the Gulf of Mexico, they'll like bite your fingers off, and they'll come back and bite your buttock off, and then they'll go for your calf, and like, they're trying to eat you. Yeah, and that's, okay. That's terrifying. Well, just, the bull sharks will eat anything. They yeah, found all kinds of stuff in those guys. That thing's trying to consume you. Uh, I just don't know of any cases. And it may there may be some, but I've not heard of a white shark trying to eat someone. It's always like mistaken identity. Yeah, the, we're apparently. The white sharks were just not fat enough for them. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, if there's, a, if there's a silver lining to getting attacked by a shark attack, it might make you feel skinny. Yeah, well, <laughs> give them a little nibble, a scooter, a camera, and then they're probably like, oh, okay, this thing has got all sorts of issues. Let me move along. Well, it's crazy, too. You see people down in the Bahamas at Tiger Beach, and they're dancing with those tiger sharks. Like, yeah. tiger sharks, too, man. Those things will eat well, anything. They bite all, through turtle shells. All sorts of videos are coming out of Kona right now by the airport where they're oh sw- yeah they're swimming with tigers every day, big tigers. Ugh. And I went looking for them there a couple of times and never saw them. So I really, gotta, I don't want to get want to go back now. There's a lot of good reasons to go to Kona for dive. I mean, like Kona it's amazing. For, it's my favorite. I have a buddy who lives out there who I could probably stay at his house now that I've been vaccinated. But he uh he works at uh Jackson diving locker out there they do the man carlos dives. yeah yeah you know carlos do yeah. you know carlos yeah i do have a carlos out there oh, carlos. I, I went looking for the tiger sharks with carlos oh carlos is great man yeah. that guy is awesome I yeah so he was he was he got his dive master working for ron for that you were talking about at cdc earlier he got his uh instructor Instructed. certification yeah. in my class like okay. he was shadowing ron yep Okay. Or the class that I was certified in, if All that right, gives so, you anything of a timeline. So we started about the same time in California diving then? Probably, but I think you were more experienced than Because I, I got certified in 2008. Okay. So maybe you were a little bit fa- faster. Yeah, just, just a handful of years. Yeah. Of you. And uh, Carlos, like, he was in on our class, and uh, I had the most bonehead mistake in the class. Like, I was a goofy student. I had not paid attention to something in the booklet, and everything was in meters. So I was trying to convert from meters to feet. I thought this was part of the test. It was the dumbest thing ever. So all my answers to the test, which was in feet, was wrong. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, it's close. Maybe that one. So dumb. And I, I was like, oh, like my questions were in meters. These answers are in feet. I just assumed I was supposed to convert him. And the guy was just, like, you know, Ron, no yeah. sympathy. Just like, oh, my God, what am I dealing with here? So he let me do the questions over. And, of course, I passed, obviously. But 
such a bonehead move. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Carlos, he um, he I used to dive with him, Carlos. He introduced me to Claudette. Yeah, I took him out on my boat uh, at least once, maybe a couple times, and dove with him in Hawaii. Mellowest diver. Yeah, super cool guy. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's funny. So did you guys didn't find any? Did you do the uh, manta dive out in Hawaii? I did the manta dive years ago, and then last time I was in Hawaii, I did the snorkel because my daughter was with me. How was it? The snorkel is better. You like the snorkel better? Way better. Why? Because you you see more. You're looking down, so you see everything. Whereas if you're parked on the bottom, you're just kind of seeing the the fire, you know, the fireplace or whatever they call it. The all the lights, all the lights on the yeah, pyramid yeah. pointing straight up. And we saw more mantas, and they were actually touching us. They were rubbing. They were doing loops so close. They were rubbing their belly to our belly on almost every loop. No way. It was ridiculous. There were we saw way more mantas, and they were closer. I just insane. had a fantastic experience, and my daughter was there, and she was having a blast. She was about eight or nine or something. I have very experienced divers tell me that that is their favorite dive they've ever done. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's one of the most beautiful things you can imagine. with Because you've got all these lights that are shining straight up from the structure they put down there to attract the mantas. Yeah. And then you've got the surfboards up top with lights on them shining down. Uh-huh. So it's just this light show, all this rave almost, and some lights are different colors, and then you get these giant mantas going by. One of them's like sixteen feet, wow, thin tip to thin tip. That's a, that's a that's a and yeah, it's just it's such a gorgeous thing to, to encounter. So that that is one of the places I want to see mantas, and then I want to make it out to uh, Socorro. Yeah, I'd like to do that too. That I'm, one seems like a great place to go. I'm such a big animal person and such a wide angle person. I, it's so many of my friends are into, I don't even call it macro anymore. I call it underwater microscopy. <laughs> I mean, we've got friends who are taking pictures of things. Like the, skeleton trim. Dude, the size of a grain of rice. And they're all excited about it. And, and they're just, they're nuts over this little thing that they found that I would never see without a magnifying glass. And they're perched over the same little spot for five or 10 minutes taking pictures of this little grain of rice animal. It's microscopy. You don't, you don't get a sense of the underwater world from that. And it is, listen, there are people who are into tiny stuff, and there are people who are into big <laughs> stuff, and then there's people like myself who I like to float between both. Like, I like some of the small stuff. It's really cool. It's interesting. They look weird. But the big stuff is so much fun, too. I, I enjoy the photos. I like seeing yeah. it on a you know, nice 24-inch monitor. you got this thing that's... <laughs> Normally invisible, and now it's filling an entire monitor, and it's cool. You can see what it's like, but wide angle tells the story. That makes you feel like you're in the water. And I would say, if I would say, most people like wide angle. I, you know, I talk, I talk a lot about Veterans Park, but the wide angle vision of Veterans Park is usually not like. Yeah, you have to be looking for something small. You got to have the squid, squid run and full effect. Sometimes the tuna crab, whenever they're in, those are kind of fun. Seats and sea lions or something. Yeah, well, occasionally you see, I mean, we used to, we had a couple of days there where we were seeing prickly sharks. And every once in a while, somebody sees a, uh, you know, a, a thresher. So. Yeah, what's that uh, ratfish? Was it file-till ratfish? I have not seen a file-till ratfish. Claudette saw one. Oh, did she? Yeah, at Vets. Wow. Almost everything has been seen at Vets. Yep. You know, you've got like six gills or seven gills and the prickly everything. shark and uh, all sorts of stuff come through there. Like. So that, it's it's got the connection to the deep water. Well, so. the, I think it's the canyon, right? Yeah, it's the Thing, canyon. Things are in the canyon, and they just like, hey, I'm going to swim up slope and see what's going on. 
And if divers are there, you get to encounter these weird creatures. It's also probably just time in the water. There's always somebody so diving many people there. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing if you go down to San, San Diego. You go down to San Diego, their canyon, you'll see all kinds of crazy. I mean, they've seen yeah. Humboldt squid there, right? Like, that's pretty crazy. I, I'll tell you a magical place that isn't that doesn't get the, as many dives as it should, and that's uh, Malaga and Haggerty. Yeah. I have seen almost everything at that spot. And my theory is lots of creatures are swimming down the coast, and they've been over sand for many you know, dozens of miles, and it's the first spot with kelp and rocks. There's a people don't realize it. There is a lot of gray whales. Uh, once drone footage became available to people, there's a couple people that I follow. They get so many gray whales coming through that cup, like beautiful scenes, like National Geographic level with basic drones of these beautiful gray whales swimming through that area, and it's just it's awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah, it's, the problem is biz isn't great there. Uh except for a handful of days a year. But if you can catch that spot on a good biz day... It's beautiful. I mean, on the same dive, I've seen multiple bat rays, shovel-nosed guitar fish, uh, just all sorts of other, like... They get tope sharks out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I've seen baby black sea bass there, or like oh, yeah. medium, not a baby, like a medium size, like two or three footer. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just like, if you put your time in, you'll see stuff, and... It's hard. Like, there's so many people who just want to go that one day and see it all. It's not always like that, even yeah, in nice places, you know? You have to be willing to put in the time. You have to be willing to go out on days that's not perfect and just try it. If, if you wait until the weather is perfect and if you can stand on the cliff and see the bottom and it's bright, sunny, you're not going to get enough days in your lifetime to see all the cool stuff. You just got to go out there and give it a try. Some of my best experiences are on days where most people decided not to dive. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know why it's that way, but it is that way. And it's, it's important. Well, Ross, we have covered the gamut of stuff tonight. And uh, I really do appreciate you sitting down and having a chat with me. This has been great. Man. Yeah. You know, we should have talked about the Gillnet story, though. So that's, oh, yeah. Thing we didn't Before cover. we go, you have this little piece of Gillnet on, the table here what happened so back to the mapping so yeah you know, I, I would during the week i would make a target list of things that looked interesting on the data and we, we talked about driving the boat over it right well i was out with steve lawson one day and we had this target out uh, not far from Izors. and we drive over it and there's tons of fish and there's a the hard bottom so I think okay this might be a wreck and we drop anchor and we go down and viz was terrible that day it was maybe eight foot viz oh and what I find is a, a gill net all bunched up and our anchor lines going down into it and our anchor sitting in it. And there are dead sea lions stuck in this gill net. And Ugh. the viz was so bad, you, you had to be right on top of it to see it. You get right on top of it and there's a giant decaying sea lion, like your size, right there in the net. And you know what? The first thing that goes on those guys is the soft tissue. So yeah, all the, their the eyes, eyes are eating out yeah, of it. Yeah. Oh, jeez. And, and I, I see like cormorants in it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is like a hellish scene. And I've got to, the anchor is going to be stuck in this thing. So we've got to get the anchor out. So I'm being very careful not to get snagged. I'm trying to get the anchor out. So we, we sorted out, managed to get our anchor. And uh, I told everybody on the bulletin boards we were talking about, hey, this 
we got a problem. There's this gill net out there. And in my mind, I thought maybe it was a 50-foot-long section of it that was snagged on some rocks or something. And I thought, okay, I'll get a six divers. And we went down with the cutting tools and stainless steel wire. And my idea was we would roll this net up and then put stainless steel wire around it and tie it so it couldn't keep killing. And maybe we could recover it if it was a small enough piece. Right. So go back a couple weeks later, a couple different boats with this idea. And we caught it on a beautiful viz day, 30, 40 foot of viz. Nice. And we get down there and find out that this gill net, uh, one little section was snagged on the rocks, and then the gill net just went off into infinity. We, we swam for 100, 200 yards maybe, and we were still following gill net. And it was just dead sea lion after dead sea lion and cormorant and fish. And just, this thing had just been killing for who knows how long. Oh my God. And the second day, the viz was really good. Uh, we did a couple dives on it. And I've got, there's lots of good pictures. Elaine Jobin took fantastic pictures. And there's some pictures of me on one side of the net holding it in like a dead sea lion in front of me. She's taking these pictures because she wants to show people, you know, how damaging these nets are. Especially yeah, they're really bad. A ghost net that's been abandoned like this. And I remember thinking to myself, how can anybody ever get in trouble? This net, I'm right by it. It's a very manageable. You know, I keep it out in front of me. Famous last words. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we realized we can't do anything. This, this is gigantic. It's it probably, uh, it had floats along the top and like a weighted cable on the bottom. And it ran hundreds of meters. More than we can deal with. We're yeah, just, some of those some of those things are five miles long. We just needed to report it at this point. Right. So we turn around, we're getting everybody back on the boat, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go check the anchor and make sure it's not snagged on this thing. Everybody else had went on went up the anchor line, they're getting on the boat. So I go over to my anchor and it's right by the base of the net and I'm moving it a little bit and suddenly I, I feel myself get snagged. And I didn't realize it, but a current had come up. And it had wrapped the net over the top of it. So now I'm on, I'm on the seafloor right by the steel cable at the base of it. And the net is wrapped over my back and is laying on the ground behind me. And suddenly my, my tanks are snagged. My, my, the valve on my tank is snagged in the net. And then my Goodman handle on my light is snagged in the net. And my camera is snagged in the net. And my SPG is snagged. Like everything suddenly... Everything's wrong. Everything and, is wrong. And I had, I've never had a panic attack underwater until this moment. And I was scared to death. I, I think I actually uh, yelled a few times just to see if my dive buddies, because they had just left me to go up the line. I thought maybe they'd hear me. That didn't work. That just made me you know, even more scared. Right. So I cut that out. And I grabbed my SPG to see how much air I had to deal with the situation. I could see the needle move. And that made me even more scared. And, and I've got a dead sea lion to my left, a dead sea lion to my right. As if, as if some like poetic foreshadowing and of I, that moment. I had a small, uh, my daughter was an infant at home, and I'm just thinking, I just killed myself. Like, Jesus. what an idiot. I'm going to run out of air, stuck in this net. I'm, everything's grabbing on me. So I, I managed to unclip my camera and I just left it like, done with that. And I thought if my knife is there, I stand a chance. If my knife isn't there, then I'm in big trouble. Because you, we, knives fall out, right? There's a right. little pouch on your side. Every now and then you lose a dive knife. 
So I reached down, I got my knife. Okay. So I reach back behind me and grab the net, and I just start cutting. And I'm cutting, and I'm cutting, and things are getting a little bit more loose. And at some point, I pull my knife across my knuckle. And I bring my hand down in front of my face. There's blood going everywhere, but my finger still moves. So I thought, fingers moving, fine. Keep cutting. Yeah, priorities. And I, I kept cutting. I got a little bit more loose. And at some point, I got loose enough that I could turn around and start to make my way under this net. And just try to you know, use my hands to keep it up off of me. And uh, you managed to get out of that. And so, when... so you, how far did you have to go where you're pushing this net off of you to get to your anchor line? Are well, we talking like the... six feet? Are we talking like ten feet? Well, the anchor line was behind me, and it kind of worked like the, the line on a pup tent, and it made a little area for me to go under. So, okay. So, so it, it folded kind of back on my anchor line. So I, I didn't have to go very far. After I got turned around and going, I had to deal with maybe six or eight feet up. But it. you're you're looking up looking at up your the, death, the, yeah, your potential the, death yeah, yeah, right above you. So oh my god! So I get loose and, and get through this and get to the surface with just you know, barely enough air to get to the surface. And I had a section of this net still stuck on my tank valve that you had cut off. That cut off, and that's so, what's on the table. Right so now. I keep this in this plastic bag. And I, I keep it with my dive gear. For years, it was on the wall at you know, my workbench over there just to remind me to... Never doubt. Never doubt the danger. Right. It just, just to remind me, don't, don't do stupid things and don't get too confident and too comfortable down there. Because when you... I, I, when you got up on the surface, how much air did you have left? Like, was it actually... Like... Sometimes when you look at your gauge, you think you have either more or less air than you actually have because you kind of see what you want to see, and you're like, why did I do that? Like, in that moment, was your needle actually moving? Did you get up and your tank was, like, almost empty, or was it higher than that? And no, in that moment, you just thought it was that low. I was, the tank was, it was getting hard to breathe. When you got to the surface. And watching the needle move and trying to slow down my breathing. And it was just a panic thing. Now, thinking about it now, I probably could have taken my rig off. I would have been really slippery because I wouldn't have had anything on me to grab on the net. I could have taken a, relaxed a little bit, got a couple of giant breaths, crawled under the net, did a, a free ascent to the surface. I would have been really positive. Yeah. Um, maybe would have been bent a little bit, but I would have been okay. I mean, I could have handled it much differently. How deep were you? That was probably 70 or 80 feet. 70 or 80 feet is quite a free ascent. It can be done, but that's a long way to think about your mortality. Yeah, if, you know, free divers do that all the time. You can do it 70 feet, you can do no problem, if you had a breath on the bottom especially. I mean, it's not uncommon for free diver, line divers, to take a breath at the surface, swim down to 100 feet, swim back up. That's, that's true. not that hard. That's true, actually. I feel a little bit like a wuss right now thinking about that, but if you, it's still it's still a little stressful just thinking about it. Though. If you have to, if all of a sudden you can't get air and you just breathed out, you're in a world of hurt. 70, 70 or eighty feet will suck. Yeah, but if you could take a couple breaths and get ready, that wouldn't be a big deal. So I could have handled it better. I panicked. I didn't mean to. I mean, I just I was just thinking. There's no way I could get in trouble around this net. Because the conditions were so good, I could see it. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't grabby at all for the vast majority of two dives. It just got me right there at the very end. 
Well, it's never it's never the things you see coming that get you. Right? Yeah, totally yeah. unexpected. All it took was just a, a current change to fold this net over me at exactly the wrong time, and I was by myself. And what's funny is uh, Bill went back down and got my camera. The net was standing straight up. My camera was just laying on the sand. Like, there was no problem at all. Oh, my God. Just that moment. Just that one moment. Got me all trapped in this thing, and I got scared. And I didn't have a lot of air to deal with the situation. I mean, if I would have had a couple thousand PSI, it wouldn't have been scary either. It was just oh. I, was, I was the very tail end of a dive. I'd used up most of my air. Uh, but that taught me the a... perfect storm. It wasn't one thing. It was a multiple. A, absolutely. It taught me a, a big lesson, and I, I dialed back my risk-taking for a, a couple of years after that. I got really conservative for a while. Are we back to the same level of risk-taking now? <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? It's like we're ready to go risk our lives again, I, needlessly. I'll put the net back on the wall for the, a while. We're so. going to get that laminated, and we're going to put it on the inside of your mask. What are you talking about? Jeez. But oh, I, my God. I have a lot of respect uh, for entanglement hazards now. And that... Getting something wrapped around your first stage and your tank valve is an ugly situation. Yeah, I mean, uh, nets nets are a little sketchy. Fishing line is a little sketchy. Like, things that are hard to deal with in certain scenarios are sketchy. The new fishing line. Have you encountered Spectra and Kevlar and all the crazy new fishing lines that are out there now? I have not. Can't break them with your hands. Oh, yeah. You need a line cutter for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's high really great for catching fish. Very terrible for getting out of situations for divers. Yeah, for years, if I get fish in line, if something snagged on me, a lot of times I could just grab the line, wrap it around my gloves, and you could just pull it apart. Uh, but the new fishing lines are out there. You're not going to be doing that. No, it's too good. So you got to have some sort of cutting tool, preferably a couple of things. You know, a knife and one of those little uh, the little pole cutters are really nice. The ones yeah. you just can just slide a line into a thing and really easy to use you're not going to cut your dry suit not right. going to cut your wetsuit those are nice you can stick them anywhere on top of your hand or on a light or you fit lots e- of places. yeah easy to get to well on that terrifying moment of <laughs> near death i think we will end this endeavor uh again uh i'm really glad you talked to me i think we left off on the most poignant story of all of them um but uh thanks for chatting man it's really cool yeah this is a fun time thank you man.